When the IBM PC was released in 1981, it established a hardware and software standard for the nascent PC industry. Today, we talk about its debut. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. All right, Dave, for this week, we're taking a look back in history to try and understand why was the IBM PC a big deal? And the IBM PC came out in 1981, and we covered the beginnings of the personal computer revolution from 1975 to 1980 in our prior episode, episode 16, the personal computer revolution. So this is kind of a continuation from that episode. Yeah, so for this week, we're really looking at a specific computer and and its impact. Right, and in that last episode, we talked about the early personal computer industry. When the IBM PC comes out, the industry starts to mature. So the IBM PC is like that transition point. It's, it's the catalyst. It sets the standard. It wasn't a de jure standard in that the industry didn't just all go and agree, well, IBM PC is going to be the standard. But we'll talk today about multiple reasons why it became the standard, both hardware and software reasons. Part of the reason the IBM PC was a big deal is that it came from IBM. What was going on in the IBM world in 1981? Yeah, that was probably the most important factor. So IBM was the dominant computer company already for decades by 1981. And the personal computer industry had kind of risen up in 1975 and then really got going in 77 with the TRS-80, um, the Commodore VIC-20, and the Apple II. These were kind of renegades, rebel upstart companies that were not exactly in the same space as IBM because IBM was making mainframes. And these were these new personal computers that were for just everyday people, regular users, but this was really exciting for people that IBM was getting into this market because people trusted IBM. People felt like, well, when IBM makes a decision about entering the personal computer space, they're going to enter in a big way. And it turned out that they really did. The IBM PC, their initial entry was not this amazing computer that was like far and away more advanced than everything that was already on the market. It was more that it had that IBM brand recognition and it was built out of components that were reliable and could be standardized and for a myriad of reasons that we'll get into, became a standard. So let's talk a little bit about how the IBM PC developed. And we're talking about a specific model here. Yeah, so the first IBM PC was the model 5150. That's what comes out in 1981. And, you know, there had been prior computers from IBM that were sort of what we would call desktop computers in that they were in a form factor that could be on a single person's desk. But they were too expensive for us to really consider them part of the PC revolution. So the PC revolution of affordable computers for average people or hobbyists was really taking off apart from IBM. But then IBM said, you know, we want to have a machine that's in that market, that's in that realm of reachability for small businesses and for hobbyists. And they were really targeting more than anything the business market. And so they selected a separate team within the company to go and create this product from the 
usual teams that have been working on um, their their computer products. And so they, it was actually in Florida, believe it or not. Now, IBM headquarters is in upstate New York, but they actually had a team out in Florida that was working on this PC project. But what the team did that was very interesting is instead of creating their own kind of proprietary solution to everything, they used as much as possible off-the-shelf components. So components that were already available from major manufacturers, a lot of them from Intel, for example, to enable them to build the computer in actually less time, so design it in less time by using these standardized parts. And then at the same time, they also were thinking that way in terms of the software, which is a much longer story. So they didn't invent anything for their computer. They were putting things together for it. They didn't invent any of the individual components out of whole cloth, except for perhaps the ROM, which is the lowest level layer of software that actually sits between the hardware and the operating system. But everything besides the ROM, which we also sometimes think about as the BIOS, um, it, everything else was basically created out of off-the-shelf components. But figuring out how to combine those components correctly is difficult in and of itself. I mean, otherwise somebody else would have already done it with all these off-the-shelf components. Now, there were other standards trying to be established at the time. Of course, there were the proprietary products, like we've talked about, the Apple II, the TRS-80, the Commodore VIC-20, but then there were also a whole other set of computers that followed something called the S100 bus. And this was based originally on the Altair, which we talked about in the previous episode. And there were many different manufacturers building S100 bus compatible computers. So there was a kind of standard getting developed outside of IBM. And IBM chose to use off-the-shelf components, but not follow this exact S100 standard, nor did they exactly use the CPM operating system from Gary Kildall and Digital Research, which was becoming the standard operating system on those S100 computers. So they were having their own amalgamation of components that was establishing their own standard, but it was built out of pre-built, already available parts from third-party manufacturers. So let's talk a little bit about the operating system. A lot of people associate the IBM PC with Microsoft DOS. Of course they do because it was the standard operating system for about a decade and a half, really until Windows 95, the majority of personal computers ran DOS. And even with Windows 95, even at that point, Windows is still kind of just a layer on top of DOS. So DOS was a standard PC operating system, but it didn't have to be that way. Microsoft was still a small company building language packages for the early personal computer industry. They had built language packages for everybody from Apple to Commodore. And so they were pretty successful at building basic interpreters, Pascal compilers, etc., but they weren't actually in the operating system market. The main company in the operating system market was Digital Research and that operating system I mentioned before, CPM. And so that was the first instinct of IBM. They actually wanted to go with CPM. And there's kind of a story that some people say is kind of apocryphal about how that didn't happen. So they had made a meeting with Digital Research, and Digital Research was out on the West Coast, I believe it was in Oregon, and they went out there, and apparently Gary Kildall, who's the head of the company, 
wasn't there at the time. He was out flying his plane, allegedly. And because there's many different versions of this story, and some people say that it's not exactly true. And supposedly, his wife, who was kind of his business partner, was was there, and they got there, and she didn't feel comfortable signing their NDA, while it's a non-disclosure agreement, while he was not present. And so she was kind of like delaying and stuff. And by the time he got back, they were already a little bit upset. And so the whole thing started on the wrong foot. I don't think that necessarily means that it couldn't have still happened, but they didn't start their business relationship in a very good place. And CPM really was the standard operating system for business users in these early personal computers. So it would have seemed the obvious choice. So the door closes for CPM, but it opens for Microsoft. It opens for Microsoft. And interestingly, they were kind of partners in a sense, uh, Microsoft and digital research. In fact, Bill Gates suggested to IBM, hey, you should probably go talk to these digital research folks. But then they came back to him. They're like, well, hey, it didn't really work out that well. Or maybe they just were feeling not so great about it from that initial meeting. And Bill Gates says, well, you know what? We can make you an operating system. Actually, we, we have something we can cook up. But the interesting thing is he didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> he didn't really have anything. Um, what he said he could do it. And then what he did is he actually bought uh, a clone of CPM. So an operating system that was pretty similar to CPM that was built by a local company in Seattle. That's where Microsoft was based now. We talked in the last episode how Microsoft started in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But by now they'd actually moved over to Seattle, which was Bill Gates and Paul Allen's hometown. And they're back in Seattle, and there's a local company there called, I think it was Seattle Computer, working on kind of a clone of CPM. And so Microsoft buys that operating system. I think it was for something like 50000 US dollars at the time, which, as we'll learn, was quite a steal, really. Uh, and they buy the operating system. They worked on it up to IBM specifications, and that became DOS. But not only did Bill Gates make an incredible decision telling them he could do it when he wasn't even really sure he could do it, but then he made another brilliant decision, which was he didn't just sell it to IBM, he licensed it to IBM. Big difference. When you sell something to somebody outright and you transfer all the intellectual property or you lock in some kind of exclusive deal, um, then you can't sell it to anybody else. But when you license something you can then still sell it to somebody else. And the reason this was so brilliant is that IBM didn't really realize that this was even significant because they were thinking, well, the value's in the hardware, right? The hardware is what costs a lot of money. People are going to pay for the hardware. So sure, if you want to license it to us, uh, for us to sell to our consumers, that's totally fine because people are going to be buying our hardware and then the software is like an add-on almost, right? But really the software was where a lot of the value was because what would happen over the next few years is the IBM PC became a standard not only because IBM created it, but also because it ended up getting cloned by a lot of other manufacturers. So the hardware is getting cloned. And that sets the standard, but they don't have anything else that's proprietary to it, so they can't adapt or really set themselves apart from their competitors. That's exactly right. And probably the most famous of the early clones that people would be familiar with was Compaq. And Compaq became a really large company by making IBM PC clones. And the reason they were able to do that is, remember what I said before, 
The IBM PC was built out of industry standard components. That means that any other manufacturer could go and buy those components. The Compaq could call up Intel and say, hey, I want those same components uh, that you're selling to IBM. And because none of this was exclusive, they could buy them. And the same was true of the disk drive manufacturer. And the same was true of the um, input-output chips and the keyboard chips and all these different chips you were all standard components so other people could buy them. The only thing that was proprietary was the ROM chip, the BIOS. That's, that's the very, very low-layer software that sits just between the hardware and the operating system. And so what they would do at these clone manufacturers, because they didn't want to get sued, is instead of just copying IBMs, they would create clean room implementations, which is basically they would try to build something without looking at IBM source code or looking at any of the specifications from IBM in too much detail. They would try to reverse engineer it and recreate it from scratch. And there were lawsuits about this, but uh, several of the clone manufacturers did successfully recreate a clean room implementation of a working BIOS. And then after they had bought all those off-the-shelf components, put them together in the right configuration, created a clean room implementation of the BIOS, all they had to do, it sounds like all because creating the clean room implementation was actually pretty hard, but once they got to that point, all they had to do was license DOS from Microsoft. The IBM PC then is a big deal for a few different reasons. It's a big deal for what it does um, for the personal computer industry, but then it, it's also a big deal in that it sets the standard and it gets cloned. And on a business level, it's a big deal where maybe there's a bit, sounds like a bit of a shift from the hardware to the software being really an important and essential and differentiating factor. Right. DOS becomes a standard because of the IBM PC. So you have IBM's credibility behind this machine. And by the way, we should say about the machine, the machine was not bad. Like I said earlier, it wasn't like the most amazing machine in the world, but it was decent and it was good enough. It had a, for the time, pretty advanced microprocessor compared to a lot of the other manufacturers on the market. So for example, the Commodores and the Apples use a 6502 microprocessor, which was an 8-bit microprocessor. But IBM shows the Intel 8088, which was the beginning of the x86 line, um, and a special variant of it that used a 8-bit bus instead of a 16-bit bus. But it was a more advanced microprocessor. It had 16-bit instructions. And it was, you could say, one generation further along than the microprocessors that were in a lot of the popular personal computers of the time. So it wasn't like this was made out of, you know, it, that it was just because it was IBM that it became popular. It was IBM who set standards in the computing industry in general, coming into the personal computer market to set a standard, using good off-the-shelf components, using um, state-of-the-art in some way components, although there were even more advanced microprocessors on the market by 81, but using good components, decent components. And then choosing an operating system strategy that ended up being very successful, not only for them, but also for Microsoft, which eventually led to MS-DOS becoming the software standard for personal computers. So you had to have all these factors. You had to have them using making a good machine, first of all, using off-the-shelf components, and uh, MS-DOS becoming a standard via it being licensed, that it could be licensed to other manufacturers as well. Who was buying the um, IBM PC Model 5150? Well, it was a lot of small business users, large business users too, to a lesser extent, it was the type of people who wanted to have a personal computer 
for things like word processing, using spreadsheets, doing basic accounting. It wasn't as much of a games machine, at least in the early days, as a lot of the other more home-focused personal computers, like the ones from Atari or from Apple or from um, Commodore, which were more focused on the home market than the business market. But a lot of people saw the big play here as really getting into the business market. And the Apple II had made a little bit of headway into the business market because it had VisiCalc, which was the first popular spreadsheet application, first come onto its platform. So it had made a little bit of headway there. But it was really the IBM PC that set the standard because I think a lot of companies, the sentiment at the time was, let's wait and see what IBM does. IBM is the company we trust. You know, there was actually a saying back then that you can't get fired for buying IBM. <laughs> the idea being that if you're a purchasing manager, you, you work at a company and you have to purchase equipment, right? Um, you can't get in trouble for buying from IBM because we know that they're so standardized. They make quality products. There's no way my boss, this is going to be a big mistake buying them, and then my boss is going to be upset with me. So there's really the sentiment that people were kind of waiting to see what IBM's play would be. And then the fact that their play was a decent one, again, not a spectacular one. It's not like the IBM PC was like years ahead of the other machines and technology, but it was high quality. It was reasonable. It, it had good trade-offs. And it had software that was ready to be uh, utilized for the next really, like I said, decade and a half. Like it was, it was there to set a standard. So it was good enough. It was good enough and it had IBM stamp of approval. And then when the clone market took off, it established a standard. Is there anything else that is important for our listeners to know about the IBM PC? I think one interesting legacy of the IBM PC is its choice of Microsoft and Intel actually became, is still with us to this day in many ways. So still to this day, 90% of the desktop and laptop market runs Windows, Microsoft's operating system, its successor to DOS on Intel-based microprocessors. Now, some of them are AMD, but the AMD microprocessors actually use the same instruction set as the Intel microprocessors. So in a sense, it's still the legacy of that same architecture going all the way up to back to the original IBM PC that came out 39 years ago. So this computer set a standard that is still with us today in many senses of the word. But at the same time, it's not IBM that ended up being able to capitalize on making this incredible standard. They did very well with their PCs in the 80s and to a lesser extent in the 90s. But as the clones became more and more successful and the standard really became Intel and Microsoft, IBM itself mattered less and less and less. And it got to the point where actually IBM's share of the PC market wasn't even that significant. Eventually what happened is they actually sold off their PC business. They sold it to a Chinese company known as Lenovo. And so when you buy a Lenovo product today, you're kind of buying the legacy of IBM's PC division. So it's interesting that they set a standard with this machine, but it was really through who they chose as their partners, Intel and Microsoft, more so than it was that they themselves became the ultimate standard bearers of the personal computer market. Also, I just want to give users a sense of how this computer compared to the ones that we talked about in episode 16. 
So you might remember we talked about the Apple II, we talked about some of the Commodore machines, we talked about the TRS-80. Those were typically running on a 6502 microprocessor, which was a pretty primitive 8-bit microprocessor. Some of them ran on a Z80, and they were running at 1 to 2 megahertz typically. Um, the IBM PC had a 16-bit microprocessor with an 8-bit bus limiting it a little bit, the Intel 8088, and it was running at almost 5 megahertz. And it came with a similar amount of RAM, 16 to 64 kilobytes in the first version, to a lot of the other personal computers that were on the market in 81. So in terms of power, we would say it was probably just a little bit more powerful than a lot of the other machines on the market at the time. But there were also some that were arguably a little bit more powerful than it. So it was right in there, probably at the high end of the market in terms of its hardware performance. Microsoft DOS was very similar in its final version to CPM, which was already on the market. So, of course, what happened is that DOS came to dominate. But believe it or not, there was a CPM option, but digital research was kind of late in getting it out. It came out about six months after the IBM PCs launch. And so it was already too little too late because DOS was actually less expensive than it, and it was already setting a standard. So even though DOS was kind of a clone of CPM, Digital research never got to get this big benefit of this clone market, even though they had kind of originally set the operating system standard. So it's kind of a sad story in terms of digital research. They were first. Some people would say theirs was even better. But then a clone came along and really took the market in a similar way how clones came about on the hardware side and took the market from IBM. It's a cutthroat business. Absolutely. And of course, this wasn't that there were no other computers on the market. Commodore would keep making machines into the 1990s. Apple, of course, is still with us today. And Atari would keep on for a while as well. So it wasn't like there were no other machines. Even the S100 bus would go on for the next few years. But the IBM PC and its clones did come to dominate. And by the 1990s, they had 90 plus percent market share. All right. Well, thanks for listening to us this week. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with us on Twitter? So we're at Kopec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. And I also want to remind everyone to leave us a review on your podcast player of choice, whether that's a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. But you could also just star us on Overcast, or even if you just follow us on Spotify, it really helps get the word out about our podcast and help our numbers. So we appreciate that. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening.